I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of Just Getting Started. I am your humble host, Rich Eisen. If you're watching on our YouTube feed for this show, which is... Also, sitting on the Rich Eisen Show YouTube feed, you'll notice I've got a nice new little Just Getting Started sign right behind me in my home studio. My buddy uh, Tom Person of Cedar Spills in the great state of Kentucky. Go to cedarspills.com. This guy's work is amazing. So I'm trying to brand this show. We're several shows in right now. And in terms of branding this show, this show, if you are new to us, it's about the origin stories of my guests. And everybody's got a beginning. Everybody's got nerves at the beginning everybody's got some nervousness at the beginning everybody's got some moments where they're wondering if they're doing the right thing about their lives at the beginning so let's take some stories from people's origins and see if it can be applied to your life if you're trying to get started on something new something that uh you're forced to do or something that you feel is long overdue to do that's what we're doing here and we'll have some fun along the way if we can And this episode is exactly that, because this is one of the funniest guys on planet Earth. His name is Bill Burr, and he's my guest on this week's Just Getting Started. He is returning to the arenas and theaters across this great country on a summer and fall tour. His F is for family is returning later this year for its fifth and final season. You've enjoyed him in The Mandalorian. You've enjoyed him in Breaking Bad. And of course, in the superb film, The King of Staten Island, he is none other than Bill Burr. How are you, Bill Burr? I'm doing good. I, we, you taught me how to download Google Chrome. Yes. <laughs> so I, am, uh, I feel like I accomplished something today. Are you not uh, tech savvy? Bill, are you not a tech savvy guy or what are you? No, and I also, I, I'm not, it doesn't even remotely interest me. All of this stuff, the only reason why I'm on this is because I like to tell jokes. Yes. So I have to be on social media. If I wasn't, like I, I find it, um, social media is for young people. Yeah. It's a young thing, the flipping the water bottles around and planking or whatever the hell they're doing this year. It's just, I get it. This is like, you know, we were doing what? Paper airplanes and uh, mescaline, whatever our generation was doing. And it's just like, this is what they're into. Why am I hanging around watching this? Although I, I, I like to look at people building tr- old trucks. I'm into old trucks and stuff. Okay, so th- we got that right there. Yeah. So so you were the wrong person to ask to explain to me what NFTs are and how they work, Bill? Is that what you're saying to me? Like, you don't... Somebody explained those to me the other day. It just seems like a way to rip off your fans. It reminded me <laughs> when I started collecting football cards again. Because I used to know everybody in the league when I was a kid because those football cards were like flashcards, and I loved them. I knew every offensive lineman, defensive lineman, cornerback, anywhere they went to school. I still remember the size. Louis Kelcher's sneaker was like cleat was like 16 quadruple E. I still remember that cartoon. So I wanted to get back into it because from 92 to 2000, I was really trying to get going as a comedian. So I started collecting cards again, and I noticed there was no kids doing it. And it was all adults. And they were sitting there in the hobby store 
throwing what they called the common cards away. These were the non-stars that weren't going to be worth anything in the future. And I'm looking at it like, those are the best guys. Those are the best guys. Everybody remembers Tony Dorsett. Do you remember Horace Ivory? Right? You want to know those guys. So the guys that made the football cards, because it was a bunch of rich, you know, adults or whatever, rich compared to a kid, buying them, everybody could get the complete set. So then they deliberately made shit rare. Yeah. So I feel like an NFT is like, you know, I could make 10,000 of these. I could easily have this piece of art. It just seems like, no, it just seems like a way to fuck over your fans. So I think we've all just sort of become our own little corporation, branding ourselves like Coke and stuff. So I don't know. So NFTs stand for nice F and try? Is that what you're saying? That's what that would stand for? I'm trying to figure out what... Well, knowing me, this clip will live in infamy uh, a year from now when I'm selling NFTs. (laughs) (laughs) That has happened to me numerous times. (laughs) Cut, smash, cut to yeah. the Bill Burr non-fungible token from his new tour or some his first ticket or his first joke yeah. or something like that. Just come out to my it. shows. I'll do my jokes. I don't even sell merch. Just Although I will have on this tour, I have um, I I recorded last time I was at Madison Square Garden. I made a double album, uh-huh. like looking like the 70s. It's sick. The inside is like... Uh, so vinyl? You're talking about a vinyl, yeah, like yeah. a double vinyl? Yeah, like got something like that, you know. I don't mind selling that to somebody, but if everybody wants one, I'll keep making them. I won't deliberately make less, so they're more. And then you buy it from me, but I still own a piece of it, like some, you know, Ponzi scheme. It just doesn't seem like a nice thing to do to somebody. I love it. You're old school. Everybody's going non fungible tokens in Bitcoin. You're going vinyl and like what eight track? Where can, can we get your new your new tour on the old eight? I go all like all that stuff that I had when I was growing up, where you had the illusion that everything was okay. That I just sort of try to exist in that. Uh-huh. I do. I like diners and greasy spoons. I don't like chains. I hate Home Depot. You know, for some reason, Lowe's feels more inviting, even though it's the same. Lowe's just has more people on the floor. You go to Home Depot, there's like one guy and people are huddling around like he's a pop star. <laughs> Where can I get a dry eraser board? You know, that was me with <laughs> Bill Burr, you are the man. So uh, when did you get started? How did you just get started on your comedy career? Bill, walk me through your origin story. All right, I had the typical child of a comedian, so we'll skip that. Okay. And then I, uh, you know, was totally withdrawn, emotionally walled off, and shy. So I was the perfect candidate to stand in front of a room full of people that, you know, can yell at you. So I, what happened? I don't know. I was working in a warehouse with a guy who was every bit as funny as I was and was into stand-up the way I was, and he said out loud that he was going to try it. And then it didn't seem, it suddenly just became possible because- up until that point, like, you know, there was no internet or anything like that. And like show business was a zillion miles away when you were living in the suburbs of Massachusetts. And it just never dawned on me that, oh, maybe they have stand up comedy in Massachusetts. And maybe there's an open mic that you just sign up for. And so I decided I was going to do it. It took like another two years for me to get the courage up to do it. Uh-huh. And I was going to Emerson College at the time. And it just so happened that Nick's Comedy Stop had a uh, a a contest, find Boston's funniest college student. This was 1992. So they weren't selling any tickets. So it was a big PR thing to get a bunch of drunk college kids 
They get drunk off their asses, spending a bunch of money watching their friends bomb, and they can make some money that week. So I saw the talent contest, and I drove home, immediately called and signed up before I chickened out. You chickened out? What do you mean you chickened out? No, no, before I chickened out. I just... Oh, I, I see. Up like, hi, my name's Bill Burr. I want to do the comedy. Okay, thanks. March 2nd. Click. And that was it. And then I did. I went down there, and I, it went okay. Didn't go great. Didn't go awful. Just went like okay, but... Right. I just knew that this is what I was supposed to be doing because everything up until that point, I always thought whatever I was trying to do, I was also looking at other people doing it to see how they were doing it because I knew I was sort of a square peg in a round hole. You know what I mean? So what what else were you trying to do before comedy, before you? Sales, construction, music, tried to be a drummer. I was going to join a band or something like that. And I just remember every time I went to the music store, there was always some kid like eight years old who just had it. You know, I mean, I was better because I played longer, but just they're the way they got down. They sat down and they, they were one with the instrument and they were already creating their own thing and already finding a voice everything that I wanted to do. But I, as a drummer, I was just, what do you, how did you play that? All right, let me do exactly what you did. Like I was, you know, if I approached comedy the way I approached drumming, I would have been one of the big joke thieves of all time. Because <laughs> all I did was like, you know, I learned how to play songs and I played exactly the way the other person did it. And it never dawned on me, hey, why don't you break out of this and come up with your own fill? Right. Why don't you use the inspiration of this groove to come up with your own groove? I just never was able to even look at drums that way until I did comedy for like 15 years. And then one day I was sitting down drumming and it just hit me like, Oh, I'm like, a, I'm just a hack. I'm just like a, just, I'm just doing, I'm just, oh, what did you just say? I'm going to try to say the exact same thing while I play stupid. So you try, you, you, you're the funniest comedian, college comedian. And then, then what, what happens after that? You got the bug and you just keep going at it. You keep going for it. Yeah, this guy, uh, Billy Martin, not the not the baseball coach, but the comedian who's now like one of the head uh, head cheeses over for the longest time over at uh, Bill Maher Real Time. He was just a really great guy. Just one of, the, one of those guys you want to meet when you're starting out where he was very encouraging, very approachable. And he was just a really good guy. I remember asking him, uh, you know, I want to do this again. He said, well, there's an open mic. And he gave me, Rita Choice was the woman who booked it. And she used to make me call and say, hello, Rita. This is open micer Bill Burr. I would like to do this big joke. And I thought it was hilarious. But, um, you know, I think back to people like that, where he could have just been this guy brushing me off, like whatever college kid, you know, And, and especially because the 80s boom was over. You know, there were some of the guys who weren't nice they, where they looked at you as like you were going to go and take their headlining spot at some point, even as an open micer. And thank God he was a nice guy. He was a really nice guy. So he gave me the number and uh, I lost. the. I had the cocktail napkin for years. When I moved to New York, I, I left it at my parents' house and I, I don't know where it is now, but somewhere his handwriting that says Rita with the number to Nick's to call for an open mic. So I just started doing that. And then you go to the open mics. You meet other open micers who are seasoned open micers. Yes. And then they, they've started their own open mic, so they know where the open mics are. And you had a big black book that you got everybody's number in, which I still have that. And uh, all the days before cell phones, it was just answering machines and home lines and stuff. And I just started doing it. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. 
This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. I got to tell you, Bill, I, I tried stand-up comedy in college, Okay. I did it for three plus years in college at the University of Michigan, and you know you and I talk about Michigan a lot because we have an affinity for that school. I tried it, and I'll be honest, what you're describing to me kind of frightened me off on trying it professionally, that everybody's trying it, and there were a bunch of people who weren't as nice as Billy Martin, you know, that you ran into, and, you know, nobody laughed when we were off stage, they all were wondering if you're going to use that, you know, if you made a joke. And I I was scared off by it. I'm not going to lie. I thought maybe I'm not cut out for this sort of thing. Yeah, I, I know. I almost uh, I almost didn't go to a gig one night. That, and I often wondered if I didn't go to that gig, would that have snowballed into me not doing it? I remember I uh, it was it was the first night where I w- I, I learned the sacrifice the first sacrifice where it was like either Boston college or the Patriots had a big game and I was still living at home. My parents were cooking up this feast. Everybody was going to be there. It was a snowy night or whatever. It was just one of those nights you want to stay home, have a few with your family fire going. I mean, it was like this Norman Rockwell scene. I could either stay here or I could drive all the way down to Rhode Island and stand in a restaurant doing stand-up while these lonely people watched the game I just left and didn't pay attention to me. Right. And I almost didn't go. I was like, you know, I don't kind of feel like going. And I asked my older brother, I go, what do you think I should do? And he goes, I think you should go. And I said, all right. And then the second I got in my truck and I drove down, I was like, I was just thinking, oh, thank you. Thanks. The second I got out of the house, I was like, yes, yes, this is what I want to do. I mean, I don't think I would have quit, but like it, it, it was just – I always think that that was like a critical moment early of this little thing to get over and to learn like, no, New Year's Eve, people are going out with the love of their life or whatever. You are going to work Friday, Saturday night. You're going to walk down the street in New York City and see all these guys on dates with these beautiful women and you're going to work or they're coming to the show and they're doing this. So the makeup part was earlier in the week when you watch them all going to work. And you didn't have to go to work, and I'm hanging out. We'll see a movie, right? It's that's what it was. But the thing, the only time that did feel good, though, I felt was when I was with another comic. But other than that, I definitely had that. You know, there is something unsettling as you're pulling away from the herd. You know, and they're getting two years of a language, and they went to college, and now they're in grad school, and now they have an internship, and then they're in their. You know, and then they get married. Now they're having a couple of kids and you're just sitting there. Oh, you know, I've got 30 minutes of stuff now. That's right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And your 20s blow by and all of a sudden you're in your mid 30s and nobody still seems to care. And you're sleeping on a futon. Yeah, man. Those nights. Oh, Jesus Christ. The demons that are running around in your head on those nights are, uh, you know, but the thing is, is, is comics are really cool. You call other comics up and you're just like, how you feeling? It's like, man, I'm fucking, I stink. I hate my act. I want to quit. And they actually, you know, as mean as we are to each other, when somebody comes at you like that, like you, you, come on, you're going to be fine. You're going to get something. What were you going to do? Huh? Were you going to manage a Lowe's? 
Or the big thing with Sue is you've been doing this. You've got a 15-year gap in your resume. What are you going to do now? I know, right? So do you remember your first joke? I don't know. No, I remember going on stage and I forgot. I didn't remember what I was going to do. And I started in the middle of whatever stuff I wrote. And it, was, it had something to do with the fact that I was a commuter and I had no friends. And I drove to school alone and I didn't know. It was just, uh, it was a self-deprecating joke about being a loser. Because that's, that's how I felt about myself for a long time. When was the first big break for you, Bill? When did that happen? When do you say that you told us about that time where you're wondering if that's an inflection point? When did it all like start to say, okay, this was worth it. This is what I love to do. And it's now beginning to hit in the matter. Maybe when I, when I went down to New York, I remember I was in uh, Massachusetts and I did a set at the uh, Comedy Connection when it was in Faneuil Hall. And this woman, Amanda Schatz from MTV, was working there at the time. She came to see a showcase and uh, evidently she liked me. I can't remember if she communicated that or not. Mm. She might have. She said it like, because they were looking for like VJs. How crazy is that? Like that, and that was like a ridiculous gig. They were looking for new talent or whatever. And that was during the time of Totally Polly and when MTV was just, was awesome, right? I moved to New York about a year after that, eight months after that. And out of nowhere, I just got a, a, a phone call message on my machine. I still remember. She's, hey, Bill Burr, Amanda Schatz. I heard you're in my city. I would love to go see you sometime. And I had just gone to the, uh, what was it? The comic strip the night before, introduced myself to Lucian, rest his soul, to tell him that I was a new comedian in town. And he just went like, all right, all right. Yeah, well, I have plenty of white guys. I have plenty of white, don't need any more white guys. Which <laughs> really annoyed slash deterred a lot of white comics. But I knew what he was saying. It's like, I don't need another fucking white comic coming here talking about cul-de-sacs and, you know, etch-a-sketch or whatever the fuck you're talking about. So I was like, I'm going to get in here. I know. I, you know, I knew. And then she just happened to call the next day. And my manager at the time was this guy, Jamie Ducat. And he, um, I called him up and I said, hey, the lady from MTV, we used to call it the alley-oop. I said, okay, she wants to go see me. So he called the club. You know, set it up. MTV wants to see this new guy. And then I went down there and then the slam dunk is I go up and I kill. So I remember standing behind that door, scared to death, knowing that this is one of these sets. It's not going to make or break my career, but it is going to add eight months of hor more horror if I don't do well on this one. I'm going to have to get in the back of the line again. So I just went up and I just I remember just said, like, commit to everything is what I thought. And I just walked through the door and I got that first laugh and I killed my version of killing, you know, three years in, however you kill it three years in. And I got off stage and it went great. Nothing happened with MTV, but it just so happened that Lucian saw me and I got passed. Like that's how I got passed. I didn't have to go into his little closet where he closed the door and take out your comedy heart and show it to you and then stomp on it, which <laughs> is what he would do. Right. If he didn't like you, like, you know, I have a couple friends of mine that their career uh, sort of ended in that little fucking room. I love that. Commit to everything. Yeah. I love that, Bill. That's great. I mean, seriously, man, that that is something you have to kind of say to yourself where it's like, this is it. There's no reason to hold back. I'm going to go crush this damn thing. And you have to, I, that's a great thing. I'm going to. Because even if you fall flat. You won't have that mental torture of I could have I could have tried harder. It's just 
throw yourself in there, have fun. Whatever happens, happens. If I was in that mindset and I didn't get something like the MTV thing, I didn't care. I got in at the comic strip. I was psyched. I mean, to, to me, that was bigger than getting on MTV because I wanted to get good at doing stand-up. But if, if I didn't get in, I would be like, all right, I, I, I could have lived with it because I went all out. But if I was like those times when I would be on my heels and sort of asking, and then this, and it, that, and just, he just would walk out and I just walk down the street. I fucking suck. I'm such a bitch. Why did I just, why just, just go up there. Can you be a man once in your life? Just all of that stuff, just torture. Torture, torture. And, and you've lived with that feeling until the next time you got on stage and hopefully had a good set. <laughs> Let's talk about the here and now right now. You got your tour dates all set. Let me get this thing right, right here. It's going to start produced by Live Nation July 2nd in Las Vegas, Nevada. That won't be a warm day at all. At the Cosmopolitan. Stops in Atlanta, Detroit, Indianapolis, St. Louis. And it wraps up December 30th in Phoenix at the Arizona federal theater when was the last time you actually performed in front of a house with people oh inside yeah man. february of last year but i've done a bunch of shows like you know parking lot shows people in cars people scattered about right people next to highways i did a great run of shows fun run of shows in dallas uh austin and houston just great fans coming out and you know spread out people wearing masks doing whatever you can do and and um it took me back. Those shows took me back to the beginning of my career where, you know, the beginning of your career is just like when you're doing stand-up, you're just doing it wherever you can do it. Right. So you're just constantly in like, it's just an uphill battle. So I always tell younger comics, it's like, don't be too hard on yourself. Like the, the, the deck is so stacked against you. It's just every time they call your name, if you have the nerve to go up there, that's a victory. And, you know, just let yourself get, you know, get a few years into this thing and then you can really start like um, assessing things. I'm not saying you shouldn't pick apart your act. Every, we all do that. But like, you know, I used to do these college kids. We don't have a microphone. Is that going to be a problem? And they wouldn't have a stage. And just, the kids are sort of gathering over there in the student union. Can you just walk over? Figure just walk over there and start your show and just be like, have you ever watched stand up comedy? Can you do something to create the illusion of an event? That's right. As opposed to just some guy who's just walking up like a crazy homeless person. <laughs> it was just, yeah, it was, I still remember this gig I did, so many of those college gigs. Yeah. They'd stick you in a hallway, like in between classes, and the people would be in a class, and they'd let out class, and then they want you to start your act. And they would walk by, like, first they'd look at you like you were giving some sort of announcements. Right, like you're a beatnik or something like that, like standing in a hallway and just, just. No, but like with a microphone. Yeah. And then it was just like, what is, and then they, you'd see the, the frat guys, the a-holes like me, right? Their eyes light up and they're like, oh my God, this is just teed up. And then they would just start going off on you. And then you really had to learn these skills of just, just, you had to find the biggest one and just chop his head off. You know, I had, yeah, there was all, there was all these different things that I learned. There was another one where the show would start. And about 11, 12 minutes in, the cool black kids would come in, right? And then what would happen is all the white kids would be looking at them, you know, because they're, look, oh, these are the cool kids. We want to be like them, right? So then you would have to bounce your white jokes off the black students 
to get the white kids who are white as you to laugh at your joke. It was the most craziest thing ever. And then occasionally when those students would come in, they would try and get you. So then you had to like, you know, it was weird. You had to get the crowd twice. <laughs> you had to get you get the people who showed up and then you had to get the, the cool kids who came in and then you had to get them. And then the nerds would be looking at the cool kids. Right. Oh, those religious schools are the all women's schools. Jesus Christ. Those were the worst. Those were the worst. So you never played Oral Roberts is what you're saying, Bill. You never played the 15 seat Oral Roberts. I played schools like that. They would book me there. And, you know, when you get an all-female school, I don't know what happens, but, like, they're some of the most humorless people I've ever met in my life, and then they book you to make them laugh. And then they're being a jerk, so then you be a jerk, and then it just starts building. And then they think here is sexist, so then you go here just to piss them off. And then you're getting halfway through, like, they're not giving me this check. I'm not getting this. I'm not getting this. (laughs) What's it like being part of the Star Wars world now? What's that like? My kids can't get enough of the Mandalorian. Oh, it's amazing. It's this huge thing that like, you know, I mean, I was into sports. You know what I mean? There was just, you know, the sports people, the sci-fi people, and I don't know what else, whatever. There's all these different things. So like, I obviously knew of it and I used to make fun of it all the time just because people loved it so much. I mean, that's what you do as a comedian. So you know, when they would line up dressed like uh, Jar Jar Binks and shit, I would just make fun of it and stuff. So um, I remember, yeah, I just, I just do that. You know what I mean? If you're going to have like a march for something, that's, it's the job of the comedian. <laughs> you know, <laughs> to just make fun of it. And for some pe- reason, people don't understand that. And they always take the bait. Like you're serious. Like I, like I give a shit if you go see a movie. I don't, I just know that it means something to you. So I'm going to try to irritate you. And if you're going to flip out, I'm going to keep going because then that becomes entertaining for me. No, John Favreau somehow, like, I don't know, he got in business with Disney and then they just created this spaghetti Western version of it. And I got to work with Rick Famuyiwa, who wrote both the episodes that I did. And he was coming from the mindset of like, OK, this crew's like a Reservoir Dogs kind of crew. And, and and John was doing like the spaghetti Western thing. It's it's. Probably the coolest thing I think I I don't know I'm trying to think of something cooler you, you could be involved in but that's kind of been my whole career like I have very small parts in really huge things did a couple sketches on Chappelle show did a couple episodes of Breaking Bad yeah you did did a couple episodes of The Mandalorian I'm never the guy but I just sort of walk by in the background holding a tray or something so I've been very very lucky to get to work with. Um, people like that. And I am as, as much fun as I had in the first episode of the Mandalorian, what they did with the character and, and the why is always so much more fun than like the what, Oh, this guy's an asshole, but the why, why is he this way? And they started to get into that. And that's just really you know, the backstory. It's pretty cool, man. When, when do we get more? When do you think you're going to, when are we going to see more Mandalorians? You would have to ask John Favreau. <laughs> <laughs> not on your docket just yet they haven't uh they haven't hit you up they haven't given you a window or something like that or well, last we saw my character i they left me in the woods on something i know you went strolling off you went i don't str- know but you know the last time they left me that was also in jail so who knows I, I listen i hope i come back not only so i can work with rick and john again but making fun of gary marcus 
is one of my favorite things ever. He's one of the guys on set. And all I do the whole time there is ask why he has a career. And he, <laughs> he's great at what he does. I'm just, I just bust his balls the entire time. And, and he does it back to me. And it really, it just makes for a really fun day. I'm trying to think what the episodes you were in. I don't know if you came across Carl Weathers, but I mean, he is. No, one of the I most, didn't, but I, I mean, tell you, my heart would have been in my throat if I had to do a scene with that guy. Right. Yeah. You know, former Oakland Raider. I have his football card. You have Carl Weathers football card is what yeah. you're saying. Well, that'd be pretty cool to get him to actually sign a football card. No, that would end any sort of cool conversation you would have with him. Why? That man, everywhere he goes, he gets asked for an autograph. What you have to do, the gift you give somebody like that is to not bug him. <laughs> and you do the scene, and if he wants to shoot the shit in between lines, yeah, you let them dictate the vibe. <laughs> you don't go in there, you know, I, I've always been collecting football cards. He's going to sit there like, oh, my God, not this. Why did I ever get into show business? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so whenever I get around, you know, legendary people i just do my shit and i and if they seem like they want to talk i'll talk and if i start talking and then they seem like they're done i just you know they got a lot on their plate well one thing i definitely want to get from you before we end this is your thoughts the last time i i spoke to you you were on on my show oh, i don't believe you spoke to me no i, I believe you came at me what are you talking about very excited that a certain player went from the new england patriots yes to Buccaneers. I was. And you were and you, so hoping that I was going to be sad and miserable and whatever life you're living as a sports fan. You wanted me to saddle up to your towny bar. Well, they blew it again. And I didn't. No, hold on. Tom Brady. Yes. And I got to tell you, that might be, other than the first one, that might be my favorite one he ever won because of all the disrespect he got while running out of fingers on a hand to put Super Bowl rings on, this is the one, what are you going to say now? And everybody just had to shut up and just realize that he is the greatest of all time. See, because you came on and Brady had just signed with Tampa. Rich, I don't want to hear your excuses. You came on a, ter you had a terrific point of view on him being the new Florida man. And that was before Gronk joined him there. So I guess that was my question was, what was it like to see Brady win it for someone else? Uh, I don't remember the last time I rooted that hard in a Super Bowl other than for a team that wasn't the Patriots. I, I, and there was another thing too was teams like the Chiefs come along a lot. Like every three, four years, there's that juggernaut offense. And, you know, ESPN's got to sell this. It's the greatest offense ever. They always say this stuff. And then what happens initially is people get enamored with them. And what they do is they try to play at their pace. And, you know, it's like you're, if you're going to try to play at Casey's pace, you're going to lose. And then it's the first guys that go, no, no, I don't care that you just got the ball and you went down the field in three plays and you're going to score. We're going to establish the running game and we're going to slow this thing down. And just the mere fact that you're not already up by 14, that's going to start messing with you. I just it, it's I don't know how many times an offense like that has to get stopped before they realize that that this is a, a cyclical thing. Well, it is seemingly a cyclical thing with Tom Brady winning it all. So how, how much longer do you think he's going to play? Because he's still got the TB12 system. You know what I mean? It's all about those bands, right? And it is. It's right. about that and the supplement. Is there a BB12 system? Is there a Bill Bill? Is there a Bill Burr 
system? Um, I would probably get sued by Tom Brady for plagiarizing his because I've I've looked at his app <laughs> because I got I had a bad shoulder and I fixed this one. Now nah, this one, I'm almost done rehabbing this one. But like, yeah, yeah I've been doing yoga, the band thing. I've been trying to Look eat you. more vegetables. Oh, dude, I, I am like, I'm stone sober now. I don't even smoke cigars. It sucks. But I sleep great. <laughs> I kind of hit a wall with that shit. I just had to like, all right, I can't do this anymore. I got two little kids. I need to be wake. I got to wake up. Who's that guy in the Raiders that ate his way out of football? I was being like that guy. I wasn't looking at game tape. Oh, Jamarcus Russell. You were the Jamarcus Russell of comedy. Is that what you're saying? No, I was going to be that of the dads if I didn't stop, you oh, know, okay. having cigars and a couple of bourbons late at night. I mean, after doing a set at my age and having kids as young as I, I mean, you just wake up. Yeah, you feel like you, you played a football game. So, you know, kids, they don't care. They come running in, jumping on your head. They don't care. So it's just like, all right. So now my big thing is once a week, I make myself a chocolate malt with whipped cream and a little... Whatever the the whatever whatever you call that machete cherry manichero. Okay. Oh man, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, cherry yeah. on top. That's all I got. That's all Fantastic. I got. Fantastic. They get all of the for all of the tour dates of Bill Burr the tour. Good luck with that. Let's chat again soon. I'm so glad. Yeah, it's been great. We've been adding dates. I think we're uh, you know get to play Red Rocks. It's gonna be sick. That'll be great, Bill. I'm very excited that uh, you're getting back out on the road. That life is getting back to normal. Get my second vaccine shot on uh, Sunday. Look at you, and I'll be good to go. Fully vaxxed, Bill yeah. Burr. Eating probiotics and vitamins and drinking water. Because I think a lot of these people are like, oh my god, knock me on my ass. It's like, yeah, well, you probably were doing what I used to do the night before, which probably, you know, the older you get is probably not a good thing to do. Because a few comics I know that got wiped out, it's like, yeah, dude, but you're kind of a booze bag. <laughs> that probably doesn't help. It probably does not. To be a booze bag and then have part of a virus put into you. That's probably not. Yeah, that's that's a bad combination, to say the least. Yeah. Hey, Bill, this is great. Thanks right. for doing it, brother. I really appreciate it. All right. Go blue, brother. I'll talk to you later. Yeah, right back at you. That's Bill Burr right here on Just Getting Started. God, I love that guy. So damn funny. Bill Burr, every single time I've interviewed him on my show, he just brings it and every word out of his mouth is funny. I don't know if it's just the accent, his way of going about his business and how he has that attitude, but he is just a down-to-earth guy as well as you could hear his humble beginnings in Massachusetts about trying out at an open mic night. I remember doing it at the student union myself at the University of Michigan. I was so damn nervous and I loved doing it. And one of the things I just want to talk about, about what he said and about my experiences of doing stand-up comedy, because that was something I always wanted to do. Growing up, I wanted to do three things. I wanted to be either a comic, a comedian, a late night host, which would Combine my love of television and chit-chatting and and uh, hopefully being funny or, you know, a sportscaster. And I went to Michigan wanting to do one of those three things. That was at least the goal. And doing stand-up comedy, I loved doing it. I was moderately successful at it. I did um, stand-up comedy once a month. Oh, gosh. From middle of my freshman year all the way through to graduation. I packed the house with my friends, so it was very, you know, friendly crowd. I really wasn't ever booed off the stage. There were a couple of times when I went outside the student union and tried it for real. One time was at some place, I don't recall the name of the place, in Livonia, Michigan, which was like a 40-minute drive outside of Ann Arbor, and I tried it out on a Saturday night, two gigs, 
you know, in one spot. It was one early for the dinner crowd and one late. In the dinner crowd, there was literally like five people in the place and just barely paying attention to what I'm saying up on the stage. I was one of the first to go up there because, you know, when you're starting out in comedy, you heard what Bill was saying. You know, you're an open mic guy. You're an open mic gal. And it's you start down on the lower, lower rungs of of everything. And you're paid, I think I was paid $50 in dinner that night. And it sucked. There's just no other way to put it. There were like a few people in the place and having a hamburger. And then later on at night, the crowd was a little bit larger. And then you'd go out and have a beer with your colleagues who we all, you know, either met that night or a couple of the student comedians came with me where I went with them. And we would sit around. And like I said, you know, when you're just joking around, having fun with your friends, you want to laugh. And a lot of these comics didn't laugh. They would just say, are you using that? Meaning the joke that you just told. And I just realized on the spot that I don't think I'm cut out for this. The, the futon on the floor living that Bill Burr said he was doing and the driving to Providence when, you know, your family and your friends are all hanging out on a cozy night, like that sort of commitment with a lifestyle and the pay, I just realized I don't think I'm cut out for this. And I think that's an interesting lesson maybe to, if for the lack of a better phrase, lesson, but something to pass along is that you know, you grow up your whole life thinking this is what you want to do. This is a dream for you to do. And then you get to actually attempt it and you realize it is friggin' hard. It's a lot of hard work. It's a huge commitment. It's a sacrifice. That's the word that Bill used. The sacrifice is how he referred to it. You know, there was a game on. He wanted to watch the game. It's his family in the house and he's got to hop in a truck and go drive to Providence and and do the do the gig. And I don't think I was cut out for it. And maybe I, I would be, you know, playing in front of packed houses, places like Bill Burr, if I had stuck with it in the way that he did driving down to Providence. I don't know. I don't think too much about it. But I think it is important for everyone who maybe you have a dream and it's not realized to, that you might be cut out for something else, that it's not the end of anything, right? That it's not, you know, an ultimate failure that one of the dreams of you trying to achieve something you don't achieve because you realize, I don't think I I have it in me to do this. So part of this podcast is about finding that thing within you to do what you want to do or what you strive to do, aspire to do, or hope to do, or dream to do. But sometimes that thing isn't what you thought you were dreaming about, right? Or it's another thing that you have on your list that you think you want to do and you move on to that. Because sports casting for me at you know in college wasn't really much of an option, you know. Nor was late night television. You know, comedy was there. And then I've kind of blended that in everything that I've done, which is why I have as many comedians on on my daily Rich Eisen show, another podcast that you can get to because it's a podcast form, being self promotional as I'm telling my story. But I think that's something I wanted to point out. And then the other thing that 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 Bill said is commit to everything. I like that. Like that's one of those things that should be maybe uh, atop the locker room door as a team goes out in the field or into the arena or what you should be thinking about before you do your job. You go about your life, whether it is parenthood or something professional or something that you do charitably. Commit to everything. I kind of dig that. 
because that speaks to a lot. It speaks to a professionalism. It also speaks to wearing some form of mental armor to ward off any second thoughts or any butterflies that may be part of what you're attempting. Commit to everything. If you commit to everything, then you're going to be okay. You don't half-ass it. You don't, which is something that Matthew McConaughey said his dad said to him when he told his father, I'm not going to want to be a lawyer anymore. I want to be an actor. That was episode one of Just Getting Started. Don't half-ass it, he said his dad said. That's another version of commit to everything. So if you go and commit and become part of what you want to achieve in the manner that wards off any sort of second thoughts that could knock you off your game, I kind of like that. Commit to everything. That's what I did when I told a story earlier on in this podcast about my first sports center at age 26. It's March Madness. It's Sweet 16. There's about 12 highlights in this Sports Center I'm about to go do live television. My dream of being a sportscaster is actually being realized on a national level at a channel, cable station, and a show that I was lionizing and emulating and everything that I was doing to get to there. And it's just finally my moment. And I don't, I'm not very well prepared in terms of seeing the highlights going on. I'm, I'm going to have to react to it. I'm going to have to go without actual written notes to prepare. I'm going to have to go off the cuff, but I am prepared for the moment because I thought to myself, don't pee down your leg. You know, what's your choice? You can either pee down your leg or go and commit to everything. I didn't use that phrase at the time, but that's essentially what I was thinking. I think that's the most portable thing to take from the show, commit to everything. I want to thank everybody who's helped put the show together of just getting started you can get this where all podcasts are required. And uh, make sure you subscribe. Hit that subscribe button. Please do leave us a rating that is commensurate with your love of this show. All right. Give us a five-star rating. You know what I'm saying? Every little bit helps keep this show going. I think we got some nice momentum building here on Just Getting Started. So we'll see you next week here on this podcast. <laughs>